The Enneacast is sponsored in part by Your Enneagram Coach. Did you know you can learn how to walk people through the Enneagram and see their lives transform? All from the comfort of your own home while also making an excellent income. Find out how by going to yourenneagramcoach.com slash BEC. There you can become a certified coach and help others discover just who it is God made them to be. Again, that's yourenneagramcoach.com slash BEC. People who we, we set up to be perfect, to be larger than life, to be uh, blessed by God, inspired, anointed by God. I think now we're, we're actually beginning to, to, to name the reality behind it. This is a show about self-discovery. About understanding ourselves. About looking into the mirror to see the good. The bad. And the unknown of who we are. This is about how we relate to God. And everyone else. From Love Thy Neighborhood in Louisville, Kentucky. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Enneacast. Hey, welcome to the Enneacast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Sam Stevenson. Every episode, we walk you through the Enneagram. And today, we're going to be talking about narcissism and the Enneagram. Uh, Narcissism is something that can impact a lot of us. We live in an age and in a culture where it seems like, you know, there are narcissists around every turn. And for many of us, you know, we've been hurt or wounded by people that struggle with narcissism or Maybe we've even been told ourselves that we struggle with narcissism, yeah. uh, which is hard for us to to hear and to accept. This is a topic that is a little beyond our expertise. And so we have asked our friend Chuck DeGroat to join us. Chuck appeared in the last season of the Enneacast when he talked about self-care in the Enneagram. Chuck is a professor of pastoral care and Christian spirituality at Western Theological Seminary. He's a therapist. He's also an author. And his most recent book is called When Narcissism Comes to Church, Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse. Welcome back to the show, Chuck. Yeah, thank you, Jesse. Thank you, friends. It's good to be back with you. You know, obviously, narcissism is an, an important topic to you because you, you wrote a whole book about it. Can you tell us some of the story of what made you want to explore this topic? Yeah, good question. I mean, for me, this goes way back uh, to my seminary days in the mid-90s. And to be honest, it's a longer story, but I, I think my own budding narcissism back then, my own certainty about everything that I believed in and thought, what I had to offer, and that blew up when a really kind professor approached me and called me out, just named my stuff. And that began a transformational process in my own life, which led to adding on a Master of Arts in Counseling degree and a lot of therapeutic work, but but led to opening my eyes to narcissism in the church. I mean, at a very early stage in my work in the church, I was seeing spiritual and emotional abuse happening. And a number of pastor friends, though, came to me and said, hey, would you write a book that gives us the language, the descriptions, the diagnostics, so that we can kind of root it out in our own uh, lives and our own congregations. Yeah. Can we get into some of that diagnostic stuff and define narcissism? So when we talk about it, what exactly are we kind of getting at? Yeah. So that too, you know, that can be tough because we all have a caricature of it, right? So we think about a politician or we think about someone in Hollywood or some famous person, right? We've, We've got this particular caricature. 
And I fuzz that up a little bit in the book. Of course, like the, the common denominator, the foundation of it that you see in the, the DSM-5, which is like the, the, the psychology Bible out there, uh, the common denominator are attributes like grandiosity, uh, attention-seeking, uh, low empathy. Oftentimes, narcissists j- just don't have the capacity to feel what you're feeling, to experience what you're experiencing. And then it talks about impairments in identity and intimacy. In other words, that just means there's a lot of disruption in their work relationships, their workplaces, in their closest intimate relationships. And so that's the, kind of the, the general package I do think it comes in different shapes and forms and faces that we would do well to kind of nuance, if that makes sense. Yeah. I would also imagine that narcissism comes in different levels of severity. Like, is there a spectrum to narcissism? Yeah, you read my mind. That's so important. Because when we're talking about narcissism, we might just be talking about someone who evidences narcissistic traits. When I do testing, for instance... I use a test that was developed by a prominent psychologist who essentially gives like three levels of it, a type, style, and disorder. And there are some of us that have like narcissistic type. We've got traits of narcissism. And there are others who display more dominant patterns. But then there are others who are disordered. In other words, they are diagnosably narcissistic personality disorder. And the the relative severity, I like to say, can be seen based on their openness to feedback, their openness to engaging a conversation about how their behavior, their relational style impacts others. And so oftentimes I'll say that when someone is diagnosably narcissistic personality disorder, we don't get a whole lot of curiosity from that. Like when I say, can I give you some feedback? They will respond to me like, you psychologists are always trying to put me in a box and put, you know, and then we just get nowhere you may go a little ways with them, and they may have some pretense of, of vulnerability. Actually, I call it vulnerability, F-A-U-X. It might sound a little bit like vulnerability, but ultimately, it's in service of protecting the false self. First is people who may have narcissistic traits, and there are a lot of us who write books and get up on stage and talk about things that may have a narcissistic trait or two, but who evidence a whole lot more curiosity, and we wonder about how we impact people how people see us. And so we're, we're able to engage uh, an honest conversation. You know, your book is called When Narcissism Comes to Church. Talk to us a little bit about that. Like, how can narcissism specifically show up in church? Yeah, that's, that's great. I often get the question from folks, is this like a new phenomenon in the church? And I want to make the case that it like goes back to Genesis chapter three, I think, and a kind of grasping after control, power, authority. And I think it's played out. I think we see it in the story of Scripture. I think we can see it in the story of the church. We build towers of Babel. We want to be first. We want to be best. We want to be seen. We want to take the kingdom uh, by force. You know, we want to take on Rome. We want to conquer. We We want empire. You know, we want to be in charge. I think there's a case to be made that there's narcissism in the history of the church It's playing out now, I think, in a way that now with the advent of social media and how visible we all are and the platforms that we see uh, so many pastors have, large platforms, big churches, we're seeing it a whole lot more. But it really came into sharper focus, I would say, in the last three to five years with Me Too, with taking abuse seriously in the church. Like we finally began to name uh, the dynamics of abuse 
And some of the dynamics that we've seen in some of these cases over the last five years or so of pastors falling from grace, uh, people who we, we set up to be perfect, to be larger than life, to be uh, blessed by God, inspired, anointed by God. I think now we're, we're actually beginning to, to, to name the reality behind it, that it wasn't a, a simple bad behavior or bad choice, but it was a long-term pattern that both allowed them to sort of elevate to a position, but also set them up for a significant fall. And so we're seeing it in, not only in individuals in the church, we're seeing it in systems, any kind of system that thinks it's more blessed, more anointed, more special, better, more honored of God, chosen of God than another. We see narcissism show up in places like that. And then if we're honest, I think we see it show up in our own hearts. I mean, I, I can't help but think that I want people to see my book as a very unique, special, incredible contribution to a large, you know, see me. Uh, acknowledge me. Hopefully I'm self-aware enough to root this stuff out, but we're all prone to it. Yeah. What's at stake if narcissism goes unaddressed? Uh, Well, so the stakes are high and it depends on the context, right? Uh, If it goes unaddressed in a marriage, uh, it can lead to painful abuse over the course of years. I mean, I can't tell you how many uh, women in particular I've worked with over the years where after 10 or 15 or 20 years, they've, they've, finally acknowledged uh, the, the significance of abuse and the invisible bruises of uh, psychological and emotional abuse. But then, then think about it with someone who has some authority, a pastor over a congregation of, of 20 or 200 or, or 2,000, and then you amplify the debris field. Uh, you think about staff. I mean, I can't tell you how many stories I've heard and been involved in where staff over the course of years have left. And there have been, as one pastor said to me, a trail of dead bodies over the years where staff have left under pretty dark and dire circumstances uh, in, the, in the wake of narcissistic abuse. And so the stakes are high, and it just magnifies to me the importance of actually having this conversation that we're having right now and doing some of this diagnostic work so that people who experience this can, can actually sort of say, I'm not crazy uh, I experienced this. This was a real thing that happened to me. Yeah. And Chuck, can you clarify this for, for me? Like the abuse that people experience, is that intentional abuse by the leaders? Well, yeah. So that it depends. In some cases, yes. Uh, and, and I would say to the degree that narcissism is more severe, that it's a personality disorder, to the degree that it takes on malignant overtones, we sometimes talk about malignant narcissism, or even sociopathy, where there's a kind of an element of narcissism where they want to afflict damage on, on others, it can be intentional. But I, I do think that in, in many cases, it's largely unintentional. And when I do the work that I do, and I, I end up sitting down with the, the narcissistic leader, and I ask about it, there really is a kind of naivete about it. Like, I, I don't relate like that, or I've never done that, or people have not been impacted by me in that way. And as they wake up, and sometimes very slowly wake up, and some of them, uh, it, it doesn't happen a whole lot, but when some of them wake up to the reality of it, there is this overwhelming sense of, I can't believe it. I didn't know the impact that I had. And they'll often say, I had no intention of doing that, but I didn't realize my impact. I didn't realize the debris field of pain that I was creating. Yeah, yeah. Like One of the questions I think is important to ask as a leader is, how do you experience me? 
and again, live and in real time so that when I uh, now, now that I'm not a pastor any longer, I'm a professor now, I do this with my students and all the students come to me every now and then and say, I've experienced you as, as distant or arrogant. It's so important for those of us in positions of leadership to be able to really hear and listen carefully and with empathy to how others experience us. Uh, and I, this is where I think the Enneagram is such a wisdom teacher for us because it tells us we have unique blind spots and each of them and every one of us is different and we have different core needs. And so our blind spots will look different. Yeah. You know, we, we talk about the Enneagram, obviously, on the show. <laughs> so can we talk a little bit about the Enneagram? And we even say sometimes in our teaching, especially in workshops, that there are certain types that are more prone to narcissism. And there's a few numbers that I can kind of throw out. But you would argue that the Enneagram is an invitation to look even deeper. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so let me ask you guys, as you've heard about it, maybe you've talked about narcissism before. Are there types that you've heard like, yeah, that that type tends to be maybe more narcissistic? Like, what have you heard? Yeah, um, the ones that come to mind for us are three, seven, and eight, just because of their, you know, drawn toward leadership or they're drawn toward the eight. Each of them are different in unique ways, but I think the three is more performative, the seven is more self-referential, and the eight's more powerful. But those are the kind of classic examples that I that come to mind. Jesse, what about you? Yeah, I would say the same numbers come to mind. The thing that's really kind of thrown me for a loop, though, is that just a moment ago when you talked about that it's really about a lack of vulnerability. And when you said that, I was like, oh, man, we're all in the hot seat. Like, <laughs> uh, because that lack of vulnerability and that lack of curiosity, you know, suddenly I can see it showing up all over the place mm -hmm. and not just not just those three types. But, yeah, traditionally, you know, the, ones, the ones that get roasted the most. Yeah, that three, seven, eight. Yeah, and some four stuff. Yeah, and four. I may or may not be a four, three, <laughs> so I may be a little sensitive uh, suddenly. Uh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, I'm a four, and that's the, the last thing that you want to see, right, is your own narcissism. But yeah, so when I think about uh, each type, when I think about narcissism, I, I think back to Claudio Naranjo, who's an early Enneagram psychologist. He saw the type seven as the archetype, the archetype of narcissism. I talk to people who say three, eight, people can make a case for one. But for me, going back kind of to my early work as a mental health therapist, I was doing a lot of work with folks around personality disorders. I was studying the Enneagram, and I remember getting acquainted with Riso and Hudson's work. Um, have you guys, are you familiar with that stuff? Yeah. Riso and yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wisdom of the Enneagram. Yeah. I mean, this is like some of the earlier stuff, right? And they contributed this really great insight around levels of, of development, like emotional development, like nine stages of health. And one of the things I discovered in that was that at the lowest stages of health, they'd often name some kind of personality disorder. And a lot of them kind of connected with what comes under the umbrella of narcissism and these different personality disorders like histrionic and borderline and sociopath and uh, not to frighten people too much right. that come under this big umbrella. And so for me, it was uh, it, it really started a long time ago when I started to see like each one of the Enneagram types has a kind of, we already know there's a dark underbelly, but we can see them play out in unique manifestations of narcissism. So I think it's really important for us to, to kind of look at, uh, look at all the types. But let me make one quick distinction before we get into it a little deeper. We often talk about grandiose versus vulnerable narcissism. And grandiose is kind of like your typical caricature, your stage version of narcissism. But 
I think what's really important to remember is that there's this kind of more vulnerable narcissism that looks a little bit more like a smug superiority versus like an onstage in-your-face superiority. They tend to be more self-absorbed. They tend to lack empathy and be a bit more passive-aggressive. And and it comes out sideways a bit. And that's where you can begin to see it in some of the other types. And so, yeah, I really, I try to make a case in the book that we can see with within each one. Yeah. Well, in your book, uh, you, you argue that narcissism actually has nine faces and you use the Enneagram types to explore each of these nine manifestations. And so what I want to do now is I want us to walk through each type and actually look at how narcissism shows up in each of the nine types. But we're going to do that after the break. So stay with us. The Enneacast is brought to you by Love Thy Neighborhood. Love Thy Neighborhood offers social justice internships supported by Christian community for young adults, like Trevor Stantliff from Ohio. I served with Love Thy Neighborhood on the healthcare track. Now that I'm in medical school and almost a physician, I'm glad to say that LTN is continually impacting the way I practice medicine by the way I interact with my patients, the way I pray for them, share a message of hope into their oftentimes dark situation, and the way I'm better able to recognize health disparities that my patients are facing. I thank God daily for the way he worked through LTN to refine and to strengthen my faith. Ready to see how Love Thy Neighborhood could impact your life? Learn more and apply at lovethyneighborhood.org. Hey, welcome back to the Enneacast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Sam Stevenson. We're here with Chuck DeGrote, who has been helping us explore narcissism in the Enneagram. And now, Chuck, I, I'd like for us to talk about the nine faces of narcissism. I think that maybe we, let's go triad, you know, by triad. Let's let's start with type two, which is the heart triad. Yeah. So when we, we think about the heart triad, right, twos, threes, and fours, really at the core, some argue, is shame. So there really is this longing for belonging, this longing to be seen. I mean, shame is this sense of, of disconnection, the sense of not enoughness at times. And, and the two is hungry for that. Oftentimes, you know, in the story of the two, they didn't get that. They didn't get the love that they longed for and maybe grew up a little too quickly. And so they'll go after that love. You know, Beatrice Chestnut says they'll go after that love, even in seductive and manipulative kinds of ways. And so uh, my friend Michael Cusack calls the two the benevolent narcissist. They give to get. And the the narcissistic, I mean, that's pretty typical too, but it becomes narcissistic when this becomes an all-encompassing relational pattern. And now there's a kind of manipulative sense as I'm giving, giving, giving to get. And you experience my rage. You know how two is connected to eight, right? You experience my rage then when you don't give me what I need. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skew details a little bit here, but I saw it in a man who led a mercy ministry for a number of years and looked on the face to be a humble man, but really wanted to save the world. And when he came up against limitations, whether it was his own limitations or the limitations of what the organization could do, became furious, became enraged. Yeah, yeah. The three, I sometimes call the winner. This is the more grandiose type of narcissism. This is the person who longs to be on stage, longs to be seen, the performer who desperately needs to be approved of and seen as successful, you know, and this wound goes back to probably childhood as well, you know, just longing to, to, to get the approval of mom, dad, coach, teacher. A lot of the church planning work that I've done over the years, uh, a lot of the assessments I've done of planters, 
three pops up a lot. They they don't mind being up on stage. And there's a there can be kind of a I'm going to say this very gently and carefully a kind of healthy narcissism, a healthy confidence you might say. Like when, when I think about my daughter when she was five years old and she did a, a cartwheel for me and she said, "Daddy, Daddy, look at me." There, there's a kind of healthy narcissism in that, but. But we can see that really unhealthy sense of it when, you know, you're now 35 years old and planting a church and you're still saying, look at me, look at me. Mm-hmm. Uh, these these first two might sound a bit more classic, but the four, the four looks a little bit different. The four is sometimes called the romantic, the individualist. And this is that more vulnerable kind of narcissism that I talked about earlier, where there is this core need to be unique, to be special and Sometimes the four will will attempt to get this need met in a more passive aggressive way or more subtle way. There's a kind of smug superiority. The four might not get up on stage, but the four will be just as dramatic. And so there it, there can be this sense sometimes of even if the four is not uh, not on stage when you're around the four, you get this sense of oh, you really want me to see you right now, don't you? <laughs> Often this is the person who is the kind of the aching romantic. I I worked with a musician a number of years ago, led worship for years, put out albums, but never felt seen and known and was losing himself. By the time I got to spend time with him, was really losing himself in a desperate desire to get likes on social media and to build a platform. Again, with the hard types, shame is really at the core. And so there's a desperate desire to be seen and an exaggerated need for attention. Yeah, I worked in the music industry for five years, and I can't tell you the number of musicians and artists within the church, you know, that I saw basically burn their lives down out of love of creating. And sadly, even the loss of all these things they loved in their life was kind of okay with them because it just became fuel to create more. So there's a real kind of, you know, inward bent. Uh, well, let's let's move on to the head triad. So, talk to us about fives, sixes, and sevens. Yeah. Well, so some folks say that at the core of the head triad, well, shame is at the core of the heart triad. Anxiety is at the core of the head triad, and so there's this core longing for security. But what you see in in the narcissistic types for the fives, sixes, and sevens is a kind of exaggerated disconnection from vulnerability. Like, so each one of them in their own way disconnects from relationship, from their own limitation, from their capacity to be seen and known for who they are and where they are. The five, of course, does this by distancing himself. They're intellectually distant. And in, in doing so, they sort of protect themselves, right? They keep themselves from the vulnerability of relationship. Maybe they were wounded in relationship. And so they kind of went into their corner, they went into their closet, they said, I'm just going to grab a Tolkien book and not come out for the next 15 years. Right, right. And so oftentimes in the church, I'll see this as kind of like through the the lens of the condescending expert, uh, the know-it-all. I know everything about theology or or polity or relationships or whatever the case may be. And they're they're not really willing to, to come down to your level and have an honest conversation. Yeah. Now, the six I often call the Hawkeye because the six is hypervigilant. They distance themselves by perching themselves up on the pedestal and looking out for any possibility or contingency that might create anxiety. And so there's this constant inner experience of anxiety. 
and they need something to bind themselves to. So oftentimes it's the rules. Oftentimes it's the letter of the law. Like I need something, I need something, and it's not going to be relationship because that's too vulnerable, but I need something to go on, something to sort of give me some sense of security, some sense that the world makes sense. And so you can imagine that like folks like this, I call them like the doctrinal policemen or the behavioral policemen in the church, you know, or women in the church. They're always looking out for, you know, those of us who cross the line. You can't do that, Jesse. Sam, you can't do a podcast on that or uh, you cross the line on this particular issue or whatever it might be. Again, not showing up vulnerably in relationship. Yeah, yeah. And then the seven, uh, the seven I'll often talk about in terms of uh, the optimist. This is sort of like the disconnected visionary. He's constantly in his office coming up with the next thing that we're going to do. And so I remember, I remember working with a church a number of years ago where this pastor was full of Enneagram 7 energy. And he was always casting vision. So he's always like 10 steps, 20 steps, 100 steps ahead of them. And he had a staff around him and a, really, frankly, a congregation, elders around him who were constantly exhausted. And when they invited him into an honest relationship of, about how that impacted them, like it's we can't keep up with you. It's too much. You're constantly, you know, 10 miles ahead of us. He'd never understand why they couldn't keep up. And so he constantly had an exhausted staff around him. So it's a real like, uh, I mean, from everything you're describing, it's just like a really acute self-preservation sort of thing. Like I am the center of my understanding of how this world and how my relationships operate. I love that language, Jesse. I mean, I think self-preservation, security, self-protection. And ultimately, as we talked about earlier, all, all every narcissistic strategy is self-protective. But there's a lot at stake. Like when I get, when we get really honest, you know, with a head type, you realize that they went up into that that tower, that fortress of their heads for a reason. And when you get really honest about their story, there's often some kind of chaos in their family where it was like, uh, I'm out, I'm done. I'm not going to play your game anymore. I'm not going to absorb the emotional pain or tax of relationship in this family. I'm just going to, I'm going up to my head. And uh, there's a, a tremendous price to pay in relationships. Uh, well, talk to us about the gut triad. These are the eights, the nines, and the ones. Yeah, well, so with gut types, right, if shame is at, at the underbelly of the heart types and anxiety of the head types, anger is really at the core of the gut types. And, you know, at best, it's like this great longing for justice and righteousness in the world. But I call this a kind of like addiction to conviction. And so with the eights, they are the most sort of upfront challenger types. I call the eights the challenger, right? They can show up as a kind of dictator. They're large and in charge. There is a kind of command and control leadership style with eights. And what's interesting is that when I get into their stories, eights will inevitably tell me that they were bullied in some way, that they experienced feeling really small in childhood. And so, you know, as a 35, 40, 50, 80-year-old, there's this deep sense that I, 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 they'll, I'll never let them see me sweat. I'll never be small again. I'll never let anyone control me. And so they become the bully. They're often like narrated as the strong leader in the church. It's always interesting to me how we, we can kind of brush aside narcissism with the excuse that, well, that's just his leadership style. 
he's just a command and control leader instead of saying, no, actually he's a bully, <laughs> right? And so when we see this become narcissistic personality disorder, we see this person really incapable of seeing how they're bullying and their kind of command and control style impacts others. Yeah, that's really good. The nine, nines are so, uh, so my wife's a nine. And so she was very intrigued when I was writing a book on narcissism. And I said, nine show up as narcissists. She's like, really, honey, you're going to do that? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, this, thankfully, this isn't my wife, but I've seen this show up. I've seen this show up in the church where there's a kind of quiet rage. Uh, they don't have access to the rage like the eight has access to the rage, but it's, it's in there. And I think it might be Suzanne Stabile who talks about with nines, they store up arrows in their quiver. That's a fascinating way to frame that, storing up arrows in their quiver. Yeah, yeah. And man, when you feel that arrow, and it doesn't come like directly, it comes indirectly. You know, it's the knife in the side rather than, you know, the two by four between the eyes. But when it comes, it comes with, with, a, with a sharp stab in the side, it comes passive aggressively, and they have the capacity to shut you out. Like they will close the door and not let you back in. I, I worked with someone who may have been diagnosably uh, narcissistic as a nine. And when you crossed the line, you didn't know it. Like with eights, you know when you cross the line. But when I crossed the line, like I didn't know it. All I knew is that I didn't get phone calls returned, texts returned. And there was no, like there, I could not build the bridge back. And I was like, oh, you are way more powerful than you let on. Yeah. And then, of course, with the one, what we see is the tendency to perfect themselves or perfect others. This is really the, the epitome of self-righteousness, the kind of classic biblical understanding of self-righteousness. I've seen this in the kind of like the confident, lawyerly type. I remember years ago when I was a Presbyterian, being corrected by one of, um, one of my brothers, as they like to call them in the Presbytery. I was I was, I was introducing someone. I was actually on stage. I was introducing someone. I said, this guy is he's a really good guy. He's going to be a great pastor. And I remember a, a man stood up and he said, point of order, uh, can we call anyone good, Reverend DeGroote? And I was like, whoa, okay, I stand corrected, you know, but it's like this lawyerly kind of sharp-edged anger, self-righteous anger where they, they need to perfect you. They need, because ultimately they're trying to perfect themselves. And so, again, each one of these is motivated by that kind of gut anger energy. And there is a sense for them that they're right. And so sometimes it comes with a lot of certainty. It's like over the years, as I've worked with eights, there are times with me, classic four, where I, I might not be in the wrong, but I'll feel like I am because that eight is so certain. And I'll just assume that it's got to be me. And it's hard to get them to a place where they, they back off and they can engage with some curiosity or wonder at times. So now that we've kind of gone through all the nine types, as people are listening, if they hear certain qualities that seem to resonate with them, what is your word to those listeners? Yeah, so I, I think I, I love it when people ask the question, is this me? Now, there, there are different motives for asking that question. There could be a very self-protective mode. I mean, I, I'm pretty confident there was one person that reached out at one point wanting me to kind of give him a, write him a note saying he's not a narcissist that he could take to his elders. I didn't write the note, but, um, <laughs> wow. but I love to do the work with people who are willing to, and I'm going to use a metaphor here that I like to use often, 
to, uh, willing to take me backstage. In other words, I think that to some degree, each one of us, when we show up with our narcissistic false selves or masks or faces, it's like we're living on stage. And it's, it's ultimately self-protective mechanism. And I love it. It feels like such an honor. And I know all of you have experienced some version of this. When, when you've been sitting with someone and they'll allow you to kind of peek behind the curtain. And I think that's the work, to be honest with you, uh, to have that kind of curiosity and wonder. Yeah. So, Chuck, I guess for the last question I want to ask, you know, what if you're somebody that has been hurt by a narcissist? What words would you have for them? Um, I think, you know, in large part, I probably wrote the book for for that person. And one of my mantras is you're not crazy. (laughs) If you've experienced what I call the bite of the narcissist or the sting of the narcissist, you will at some point inevitably feel uh, crazy. We call this phenomenon gaslighting. You begin to question your own reality. Maybe it's me. Maybe I've done something. So you really need, with that in mind, you really need an anchor point. And there are a variety of different anchor points. One is just you need someone in your life to mirror back to you that you're not crazy. You need a friend, a therapist, a pastor, a mentor to sit with you and and say, you know, I've heard the story and you've described what happened, but but what I want to say to you is I'm not entirely sure you you did what what you're being accused of, or I don't think you're crazy, or whatever the right words in that moment might be, right, which will help anchor us back in reality and invite us to maybe ask, well, what is the truth? Uh, What really happened? With narcissism, always a manipulation of reality, of the truth. There's always image management going on. And so we've got to be aware of, like, how am I being caught up and spun up into that? Um, the, the anchor point of, of contemplative prayer, silent prayer, anchor points of prayer where you can be present to God, present to what's going on inside of you, and ask the question, so what's really going on inside my heart right now? Where am I? And so it's really important to, if you're experiencing narcissism, to find someone that you can talk to that may understand some of the dynamics of narcissism and just ground you back in reality. Well, for our listeners, I want to encourage you to pick up Chuck's book because the epilogue is about the path forward for each of the Enneagram types. And where do you go from here? Where do you go if you're seeing some of these traits in yourself or you're seeing some of these traits in other people? Um, And so I want to refer you to that. Well, this has been a a really uh, heavy and dense and meaningful conversation. And so I think it's time that we act uh, a bit moronic. And so when we come back, we're going to be playing Super Fight Challenge with Chuck DeGroat. Stay with us. In today's episode of the Enneacast, we're talking about narcissism. And some forms of narcissism are actually considered a mental illness. And mental illness It's difficult to understand, and it's really painful. Well, to explore how our faith and mental illness interact, check out our other podcast, the Love That Neighborhood podcast. And specifically, check out episode number seven, where the gospel meets mental illness. I started becoming delusional. It's a scary thing to see someone that you love in a full mania state. Oftentimes, I think that we try to misapply scripture. It's because mental health and mental illness is just so hard to understand. You can listen to the Love That Neighborhood podcast by listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts, or by heading over to lovethatneighborhood.org slash LTN podcast. Again, lovethatneighborhood.org slash LTN podcast. Mm-hmm.
Hey, welcome back to the IndieCast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Sam Stevenson. And now it's time for Super Fight Challenge. Okay, Super Fight is a real game. It's made by Skybound Games. You can find it on Amazon or at superfightgame.com. Okay, here's how the game works. We have a stack of cards with Enneagram numbers on them, and we have a stack of cards with random attributes on them. Sam and I are going to draw from each stack. The Enneagram number is going to be our fighter, and the attributes are going to be the abilities of that fighter. But here's the twist. Our fighters aren't going to physically fight. Instead, after we have our fighters, we will then draw a contest card. It could be simple like a beauty pageant or it could be ridiculous like underwater basket weaving. Uh, Chuck, you then have to decide whose fighter would win the given contest, either Sam's or mine. Uh, We can make arguments or try to convince you. But ultimately, Chuck, you are the judge. I wanted to be the judge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So we're going to play three rounds. You guys ready? Yeah. All right, go ahead, Sam. Okay, I am a type two. I am wearing a suit of armor, and there are 100 of me. Okay, I'm a type one. Okay. I throw bears, (laughs) uh, and I am armed with a super soaker. Okay. And then our context is worst date. <laughs> uh, so who would win the worst date or who would who would be the worst date? Uh, yeah. Which one of us would be a worse, a, a more terrible date? Well, there are a hundred of me. So if you don't like me, you're really <laughs> kind of in a bad place. And you can't see what I'm wearing because I'm wearing a suit of armor. I'm probably not good at small talk because there are 100 of me. So it's hard to get a word in edgewise. I am a type two. So I, that is a pretty, you know accommodating guests so i think that i would be a a good date otherwise but there are a hundred of me that's hard to beat yeah okay what about you Uh, i'm an unhealthy type one um (laughs) basically what i do is i you go on a date with me i i'm going throughout society and then basically anytime that people are causing infractions on what i believe things should be i'm either shooting them square in the face with a super soaker or I'm throwing a bear at them. <laughs> so, uh, stuffed so, bear? Uh, not a stuffed bear. Live bears. So I'm judging everyone and then bringing my justice to their ruin. Did I mention I'm an unhealthy two and I'm nagging all the time? <laughs> <laughs> Should throw that in there. Uh, so yeah, so Chuck, uh, which of these sounds like a worse date? Oh, wow. It, I, like, I can't say both because both sound horrible. But um, listen, I, like there's... There's nothing like like an invulnerable two hidden behind armor. Mm. So I want to go with the two. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing like an invulnerable two hidden behind armor. That's a metaphor. Okay. All right, Sam. I'm an eight, and I'm armed with a shotgun that shoots shotguns, but my hands are covered in butter. <laughs> so I don't know if that's going to come in handy. <laughs> we'll see what happens with that. Uh, I'm a type six. I'm a hundred stories tall. And I am armed with a bacon-wrapped baseball bat. Huh. So let's see. Let's see if this helps us at all. The context is, survive the longest in a zombie apocalypse. Well, I can shoot them with my shotgun that shoots shotguns. That's like an infinite number of shotguns. Um, and I'm an eight, so I'm already pretty combative. So I think I've got the upper hand. I'm a six. I've already considered that the zombie apocalypse is going to happen. I've already made all the contingency plans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm 100 stories tall, and, you know, the baseball bat will just come in convenient 
you know. It's like The Walking Dead. Yeah, yeah. Sixes will still be here after the rest of us are dead. I don't know. Eights, I feel like sixes and eights are good for the zombie apocalypse team. Yeah. Like you and both of them on your, yeah, on your that's team. Yeah, true. All right. Uh, so, Chuck, who would survive the longest? Uh, this one's easy. I mean, are you kidding me? Like the hypervigilant um, six, 100 stories tall, can see anything and has a bat <laughs> wrapped in bacon in, in its hand. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Jesse is taking numerous bows in the studio. Yep. Yep. I'm bowing. All, All right. right. All right. I'm a type four. I can heal myself 100 times faster than normal, and I can walk through solid objects. I don't know if that's going to come in handy for what we're about to do, but it just seemed advantageous to pick them. Yeah, but if you're a four, can you really heal your truest wounds? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Uh, Okay, I'm a type eight, unhealthy, armed with a sadness ray, uh, and I have an invisibility cloak. Okay. And And the context for both of these is... Most legendary pro wrestler. Oh, I think you win. (laughs) (laughs) I can't even argue. (laughs) Uh, uh. Um, Because just because you're an eight, I don't even like my skills don't come in handy for that. Except if I get hurt, I can heal myself pretty quickly, and I can walk through solid objects, which helps and in the wrestling ring a lot. (laughs) And I'm a four. I have a lot of angst. Yeah. I don't know. That's the best I got. I feel like I could lay down the attributes and just say I'm an eight. <laughs> and I'm and I'm already I'm already in the lead. Yeah, you know. I'm armed with a sadness ray, so I can make everyone cry. And I have an invisibility cloak. And so on the rare chance that I actually get hurt, I'll just slip that invisibility cloak on and I'm out of there. Uh so Chuck, uh who who would make the more uh legendary pro wrestler? Okay, so you guys have to follow this now. Every four knows that life is a wrestling match, right? Mm. And we all we all feel such deep wounds and we all long to heal ourselves. Plus, we all just long. We sometimes find ourselves in environments that we just want to get out of. We need to get out sometimes. So we got to walk through that wall of life and just get out of the wrestling match. So you're well, saying, that's it. dang it. So you're saying I won. <laughs> you won. The four always wins. Not really, actually. <laughs> Uh, well, I have to give credit where credit's due. Congratulations, Sam. Thank you. You won Super Fight Challenge. I win once again. Once again. All right. And now it's time for listener questions. Okay. So this question comes from Christian Enneagram. How do you recover from a narcissistic parent? Ooh, okay. Um, this is uh, tough work, and I think it requires doing the work with with a, a veteran therapist who gets the dynamics of narcissism. And one thing I'll say is that not every therapist uh, gets these dynamics. I've got a, a woman who is, has become a good friend who's doing some doctoral work right now, in fact, on mothers who are narcissistic. And there's a whole set of literature out there on narcissistic mothers. And so... You really want to make sure that if you're going to do this work, you do it with someone who gets these particular dynamics because the wound of a narcissistic parent is a really unique and painful wound that shows up in particular kinds of ways. And you're going to want to, you're going to want to explore those ways that it shows up in your own life and how you end up living out of uh, the wounds that you experienced in childhood and how that affects people in your own life now. Yeah, I, I keep thinking about that, you know, again, going back to that self-preservationist thing, you know, in a narcissistic parent, 
a healthy parent, you know, of course, would be they have a sense of self, but also very much a lot of their life is about I want to care for my child, prepare my child, love my child, delight in my child. But that narcissistic parent, you know, it it becomes so self-referential, you know, and the damage that would do to a, to a child. Yeah, it's a particularly painful kind of wounding. And I've seen it happen too often. And oftentimes people who I work with who've been to a lot of other therapy have never identified it in that particular kind of way with previous therapists. And so they've missed an opportunity to heal in the ways they need to be healed. Mm, That's good. Okay, this question comes from Alyssa in the wild. She asks, what do personality disorders have to do with the Enneagram? Yeah, well, so this really uh, goes back to our the earliest part of our podcast conversation about how there are folks who've been writing about the Enneagram on the Enneagram for many years who've identified correlations between the Enneagram and particular personality disorders. This happens to show up with uh, people who have experienced profound woundedness or trauma in their lives. And uh, Riso and Hudson talked about the levels of development where people who are significantly underdeveloped and who have significant trauma and wounding will often show up with particular kinds of personality disorders, borderline, histrionic, dependent, avoidant, narcissistic. And so it's sort of like two tools that go hand in hand. We've got the the psychological language of personality disorders, the kind of wisdom tradition of the Enneagram. And what I want to say is there's like in the grand Venn diagram, there's significant overlap. And so we look for places of correlation and correspondence between the two. Is there a one-to-one correlation? Like is histrionic associated with four and avoidant associated with eight? Like, you know what I mean? I think that people have tried to do that, but I actually think that the whatever correlations uh, they're finding are, are more anecdotal than anything like that. Like there's not hard research out there. And so, you know, it's left to people like me who've done the work over the years to kind of say, this is what we've seen. We don't have, you know, we don't have hard data, although I've got a bunch of data, but we don't have like the research study to go with it. But these, these are the general kinds of connections that we've made. Yeah, that's helpful. Okay, this question is an anonymous question. Is narcissism fixed or can people change? Yeah, great question. And this goes back to if someone is disordered, in other words, their narcissistic personality disorder it's really rare that we see significant change. And in fact, what we try to do at that point is we try to manage and mitigate the damage of it, but there we don't really see the kind of deep, substantial transformation that I'd hope for. Whereas you know, people who have exhibit like narcissistic traits, but who aren't diagnosably narcissistic personality disorder, yeah, we, we can see, I don't like the word fixed because I, I, I think of all of us in process, but I do think that you can see sub, sub, substantial uh, humility and growth and change in them. Yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. That's hopeful. Mm-hmm. Well, Chuck, thanks so much for doing this today, man. It's been great to talk with you. Thanks, Jesse, Sam, Rachel. It's You guys ask great questions. It's always great being on with you. Uh, it's a lot of fun. The games are awesome. So thank you. Thanks to our special guest today, Chuck DeGroat. You can find Chuck's book, When Narcissism Comes to Church, on Amazon or wherever good books are sold. Uh, You can also learn more about Chuck's work and keep up with his latest writing by going to chuckdegroat.net. As always, thanks to our friends at Crosspoint Ministry who trained us in the Enneagram. You can learn more about their work at crosspointministry.com. 
Our show is a production of Love Thy Neighborhood. Love Thy Neighborhood provides social action internships supported by Christian community for young adults ages 18 to 30. Come serve with us for a summer or a year. Grow in your faith and life skills. Learn more at lovethyneighborhood.org. Today's episode was produced by myself, Sam Stevenson, and Rachel Zabo. Engineering and editing by The Rachel Zabo. Music for today's episode comes from Murphy DX. I'm Sam Stevenson. And I'm Jesse Eubanks. Remember, the eye can see everything but itself. Find people to journey with you because you were created for community. Community.